Hey, it's Marisa from the Tower Hill production team. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Tower Hill podcast. Whenever or wherever you're listening, we hope this helps you continue to grow in your faith journey. Good morning, Tower Hill Church Online. I'm Pastor Jason. It's great to be with you today as we're finishing up our series on love in the age of outrage. Remember where we started was asking this question, hey, did you notice everybody's outraged at everything? Like absolutely everything. Used to be you can't talk about religion and politics. I don't even know what we're going to talk about at Thanksgiving this year because it seems like everything we talk about very quickly turns to outrage, as if outrage is the next available emotion all the time. If you're a fan of the Avengers movies, you know the the secret that uh, Bruce Banner says about being the Hulk. said, the secret is I'm always angry. (laughs) I feel like, yeah, this is perfect. Perfectly describes what is happening right now. And so we started with a framing question is, as we engage with the world around us, whether it's in social media feeds or relationships, whatever that looks like, circumstances, is that maybe we need to just take a step back long enough to ask a better framing question. And that is, am I falling into outrage here? Or am I looking to engage with Christ's love? I think if we're just self-aware enough to do that, you know, it's sort of like those anger management techniques. It's like if you could just kind of step back and get a little perspective, it might help us to more faithfully engage with the culture around us. And it's so vitally important that we do. We talked last week about that illustration of the diamonds against the black felt. The beauty of the Christian faith should stand in greater brilliance against the backdrop of a sin-broken world. In other words, they should look to the church, to Christians, and be like, I want that. That that way of life is so incomparably beautiful compared to the ugliness of sin around me. I think today we need to, as we turn the final corner here, we need to talk about, okay, so what are we going to do about it? We know what not to do, but what does it look like to put this in motion, this love in the age of outrage? What does it look like to bring that love? And how do we do it? We imperfect, broken, sinful people, how do we do it? Well, I think part of it is understanding like half the battle is getting out of reactive mode. You know, when you're on the defensive all the time, you don't have a lot of energy to be proactive. So we need to get out of reactive mode and enter into proactive mode Or maybe like in a vernacular way of saying it, it's like, instead of playing defense, we need to play some offense. In other words, instead of just kind of responding to the constant inputs, we need to provide some outputs. We need to show and demonstrate the love of Jesus in the midst of the outrage. How do you do that? Well, this is something we keep coming back to over and over again because this is the way you do it. Like, like there's no, you you always mention this, Pastor. Yeah, because this is the only way that I know how. And that is to engage in a deeper walk with Jesus. And and the way that you do that is through spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines. Remember the sermon series we did last Lent? Oh my gosh, it feels like four years ago. But last Lent, 2021, we, we did this sermon series called Louder, where we unpacked all of these ancient spiritual disciplines as a way of tuning in and amplifying the voice of God in our lives. Remember the promise of Jeremiah 6, 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. 
man, we have to remember that promise of God. What a deep and incredible promise. If you walk in these good ways, you will find rest. You will find peace. You will find what you're looking for even in the age of outrage. And then if you have that peace and that rest, you can then approach the age of outrage in a more Christ-like way. We mentioned, you know, just a few that we mentioned of many spiritual practices are prayer, Bible study, and fasting as sort of three ways of jumping into this habit development of loving the way that Jesus calls us to love, these ancient practices. And the more you do that, they have this shaping effect on us. It's sort of like if you were training to go run a 5K or a 10K, whatever it is. Um, well, first of all, you wouldn't dream of not training to run a race because if you did, it'd be a disaster, right? I, not only would you not perform well, but you would be sore for weeks <laughs> or you might even get injured. The whole goal is you train. And how do you train? You just start a little bit at a time. You don't train to run your first marathon by running 26 miles in your training. One step at a time, one mile increment at a time, however long it takes. Because what happens is you need to build the muscles. And very small steps over time become great accomplishments. So in a similar way, through spiritual disciplines, we train our hearts to beat for Jesus, to beat like Jesus' heart. We share Jesus' heart. And we get better and better at it the more that we work on this. Ed Stetzer, in this book, we've been talking and sort of having a conversation with. I wish Ed were here because I feel like uh, he's been a conversation partner along our journey. But in Christians of the Age of Outrage, he says, Are you weary of the pace of this world? Does this never-ending deluge of information from the media wear on you? God promises that when we meet him, we find our true rest along these ancient paths. Not in technology, a new medication, or the passage of new legislation, but through intentionally and habitually coming to Jesus and casting our burdens upon him. I love that, intentionally and habitually. Only there do we find true and enduring rest. And when we submit our inputs and outputs to the gospel, we will find that the voices of outrage dim and the peace of God grows. I mean, this has been my experience of life, and it's probably been yours too, that as you dig deeper in your relationship with God, things start to change. As you cultivate habits of prayer, your approach to people changes. I mean, I've never seen or heard of somebody praying for somebody and and their heart not softening toward them. Prayer transforms things. See, spiritual formation gets us out of reactive mode and into proactive mode. That's how we do it through spiritual formation, so that we can bring the love of Christ somewhere, not just defend against all the arrows coming out of us, but how do, we, how do we play offense? How do we move the ball of Christ's love to the world? It's through spiritual formation. Because as we are formed by Jesus and transformed by the renewing of our minds we talked about, then we are able to do what God has called us to do. Uh, there's a great example of this. I was just reading, I think it was two weeks ago, Um, this article that was in the Christian Post from uh, September 16th about John Cooper, who's the front man of a band called Skillet. Skillet was a really popular Christian band, particularly when I was uh, in my youth ministry days, late 90s, early 2000s. In fact, they had gotten so big, they were opening for some big-name secular bands, you know, non-Christian bands. And uh, John Cooper was sharing, as the Christian Post was reporting about his book that came out, 
and how he was sharing about how at one point he's touring with these big bands, these non-Christian bands as an opening act. And this big time manager comes up to him and he says, you know, you guys got everything. You guys are, you guys could be the biggest thing. You got everything. Your sound's good. You got, you got a perfect sound, you know, perfect style. Even the way your, your band, it's, it's, you know, you've got men and women in the band and it's like, now's the time. You can be the biggest band in the world. And, uh, and he says in the interview, you know, this manager tells him, so it's your time, but you have got to disassociate from Christianity. You've got to stop talking about Jesus so much. And he goes on to tell him, you know, don't do the Christian interviews and don't be so blatantly Christian about everything. He said, John, think about the good you could do for your faith. If you got rich and famous, think about what you could do for Jesus if you stop talking about Jesus. Oh, man. Doesn't this feel like when Satan tempts Jesus to give him all the kingdoms of the world? Like, it feels like this is an actual moment for John Cooper. And if he had not been transformed by a renewed mind, if he had not been deeply spiritually formed by the love of Jesus Christ, he may have jumped at that. But instead, what did he do? He went back to a discipline. He, went, he said he went back to his trailer with his wife. They prayed, and instantaneously they knew run. <laughs> this is not the way. Now, Skillet went on to be multi-platinum album. They got many awards, Christian awards, and, and he's had a wonderful career, but he never had to sacrifice what he believed God was telling him to do. In fact, he said, it didn't shut me up. It only made me talk, want to talk about Jesus more. This is the kind of thing where as we develop spiritual disciplines and spiritual habits and it transforms us so that we approach the outrage as we should with the love of Jesus and with the strength of Jesus, with the joy of the Lord and the resolve to go about the work of the Lord. So what does this all mean, though? What are we being spiritually formed to? Well, the answer is we are being made more and more into the likeness of Jesus. The goal of spiritual transformation is to become more like Christ. More of Jesus, less of me. And what this means is we start to care about, remember I said a heart that beats for Jesus, we start to care about what Jesus cares about. And what does he care about? Well, let's read here in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Wonder what Jesus cared about? Clearly, from the beginning, it was about proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, we see the kingdom of God all throughout the scripture, and especially in the New Testament, but you could say that this was the entire message. If there was one message that Jesus was trying to get across, it's that the kingdom of God is near. And you, if you put your faith in him and you're forgiven, you can participate in the kingdom of God, not in the sweet by and by, but in the here and now. What is the kingdom of God? Well, it's the place where God's rule and reign are complete, where you find, you know, we get all these prophetic scriptures about it. It's where everything is made right, where sin is obliterated. And all that's left is God's true justice and freedom from oppression, no more tears, no more suffering, comfort, joy, peace, mercy, love. It's where we'll see God face to face, right? This, the kingdom of God, this place where 
where God's way wins, right? Despite it has finally and fully defeated sin and death and eradicated it from existence, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God uh, has always been talked about sort of in opposition to the kingdom of the world. And that the, there's this kingdom of the world and it's passing away and the kingdom of God is growing. And this was the good news of Jesus said, you don't have to worry about the kingdom of the world. King of the world ends in death, but God the Father has a different plan that if you are part of God's kingdom, it only leads to life. Now this idea of the kingdom of God is sort of like taking the values of the world and putting them on their head, you know, where it's all about, it's not about hating your enemies, it's about loving your enemies. It's, it's about reaching out to the marginalized and the poor and the people who don't, showing your most love to the people who deserve it the least. That's some of the values of the kingdom of God are, are many times inverse of the values of this world. In a way to describe it, I think you could think of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world sort of like a baseball field. If you look at this picture, so here's what we believe, and this is sort of what Jesus was saying. He said, you have, you have two kingdoms. You have the kingdom of the world that happened the minute that sin entered, right? It was the kingdom of God, and then uh, sin entered the world and broke it. And so you have the kingdom of this world that still is dominated by sin. But as soon as Jesus rose from the dead, he, well, actually, just Jesus' presence on the earth, not just when he rose from the dead, when his presence on the earth was the presence of the kingdom of God. So when he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is at hand, he means himself. And then when he died and rose again, he then opens the doors for all of us through faith to participate in the kingdom of God. And so the idea is sort of like the angle on a baseball field is that the kingdom of God has been expanding ever since. It started with the apostles and the early followers and then the early church. And then the idea, it's been growing and growing and growing until one day when he comes again, the second coming, when heaven and earth are made new, the kingdom will be fully realized. And our job as people of faith is to do whatever we can to, to grow the kingdom of God, to participate in the growing of God's kingdom here on earth. And right now we're sort of in between, right? We've got, we've got a foot in both kingdoms, but one day all that will be left is the kingdom of God. So you can say Christian spiritual formation is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's like putting on kingdom of God lenses, right? In order to see things the way God sees them or as they really are, you put on these corrective lenses that show you all of the values all of the work, all of the opportunities to grow and to expand God's kingdom here on earth. Because then our lives become about what God wants, not just what we want. I mean, we all have our goals and dreams. I don't think God um, doesn't want us to have those. I think oftentimes they're good things, but, but he has a bigger plan in mind. He wants to use these goals and dreams and the people that we are to affect the growth of his kingdom. That's what it is. In other words, following Jesus isn't just about like adhering to a, a rule set. It's by being transformed so that you can help Jesus reset the rules, right? So reset the values, reset the kingdom. So what does that look like? Well, let's look at this passage here because I think this sums it up really well. This is from the Gospel of Luke, beginning with 27. This is Jesus teaching about what does kingdom of God behavior look like? 
How do you love in the age of outrage, so to speak? But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. How, how countercultural is that? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And I don't just want to glance past these because we want to read them fast. I mean, think about the implications. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And then quite, you'll remember this part. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. What? Somebody steals from me, I'm going to let them have it. I'm going to punch them in the head, you know, right? I mean, not me, of course, but, right? I'm the, don't withhold your, oh yeah, here's my shirt. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Right? My, my neighbors had the shovel for four weeks, man. Won't give a... <laughs> I mean, the implications are huge. It's not the way that we're taught to behave necessarily in our lives. It, and that's the point. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is about radical love. And this radical love looks like nothing that this world has to offer. Do to others as you would have them do to you. The golden rule, right? If you love those who love you, and this is so good, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. If you could show love to the ungrateful and the wicked, that's what it looks like to do your part in the name of Jesus for the sake of His kingdom. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, real quick, he's talking about grain and uh, the buying and selling of grain. What's a measure? You know, a measure of grain um, that's pressed down and overflowing is more grain. The idea is uh, whenever you're buying and selling grain, you'd have the buyer's measure and the seller's measure. The seller's measure was always less <laughs> than the buyer because the buyer always wanted more. And, and what God Jesus' point is, whatever measure you use is going to be measured to you. In other words, living for the kingdom of God is not just living a personal relationship with Jesus and, and excluding the people around you. It's both. Remember the great commandment, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor of yourself, as yourself. Both go hand in hand. This is what it looks like, spiritually speaking, to play offense and not defense. So what does it say about loving in the age of outrage? Well, I mean a million things, but a couple things just right off the bat from these scriptures is first, the scriptures assume you're going to be with people who will tempt you to judge. <laughs> right? You're going to be mixing it up in culture. You're not running away from culture and, and you're not clawing at them with judgment. 
You're bringing gospel engagement. You are doing life with them. And that's really important because, again, we don't want to just withdraw from culture. The second is Jesus calls us to a different way of living in that culture, a kingdom of God way, a new way, a, a renewing of the mind way, a way that is shaped by the discipline of engaging with Scripture and with prayer and with fasting and with love and with service and with worship and all of these spiritual disciplines that build us up so that we approach the outrage with, the, with a God-sized love, not a human-sized love. I mean, if, if you want any example of this, Jesus modeled it in one of the most profound ways imaginable. So there he is hanging on the cross. And I think sometimes we forget there were two other robbers with him. One robber sort of ridiculed Jesus, and the other said, wait a minute, this, this man's done nothing wrong. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There it is again. When you come into your kingdom, Jesus, remember me. This kind of last-ditch cry of faith before this man was put to death for being a criminal. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus calls us to a different way, a kingdom of God way, that simply is the most radical love and forgiveness you can imagine. And then third, Jesus sends us as his ambassadors now, leading with love into the world. And that's how we're to do it. 2 Corinthians, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A fully formed, gospel-centered view of culture is neither attack nor retreat, but gospel engagement. I'll close with this illustration, and I want to thank Francis Chan in one of his teaching videos that gave me this idea. The Christian life and loving in the age of outrage isn't just a head exercise. It's a doing exercise. There's no substitute for you engaging in the Christian life yourself. You don't need me to talk through it all the time. You need to engage. I said, it's sort of like if somebody came to me and said, oh, what's your favorite band? And I would say something like, oh, it's U2. U2 is my favorite band. And then I started to I hit play on Where the Streets Have No Name. But instead of listening to you two sing it, I was singing it because I was so into it. I want to run. I want to hide. Right? And I just kind of, you know, belted it out. That experience is not anywhere near as good <laughs> as if you were listening to you two directly. In other words, don't just listen to all of the ways that other people have loved in the age of outrage. Experience it yourself. Experience the gospel yourself so that you can share it. Yes, even in the midst of outrage. Well, I hope that this has been helpful to you. And may God bless all of us as we love better. 